Today's episode of the Hot 4 podcast is brought to you by EcoKeg, the strongest, most versatile and eco-friendly one-way keg on the market today. EcoKegs can be racked just like a cask or counter-pressure filled like any traditional steel keg. Made in the UK using 70% recycled materials and fully recyclable to industrial recyclers, they can be 100% recycled by EcoKeg themselves into new kegs and they also offer free collection for empty EcoKegs. Used extensively across the brewing industry by cast brewers looking to enter the keg market without needing any expensive equipment, as well as macro and micro brewers distributing across the UK and throughout the rest of the world, particularly because they are available not only in Sankey valves, but Grundy, A and D types also. For more information, you can speak directly to Lewis on 01656 725 799 or email info at ecokeg.com or visit their website ecokeg.com. This is Nick Law and you're listening to the Hot Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hotforward.beer is a podcast and website dedicated to the beer industry, supporting budding beer entrepreneurs by gaining insights from experienced brewers and folk within the craft beer industry. Grab a glass, pour yourself a beer, and let's get into this week's episode. Hoppy Christmas, Santa's beery elves, and welcome to a rather festive Hop Forward podcast. Are you hanging up your stockings on the wall? Or are you rushing around the cellar, changing barrels, or getting ready to put deliveries on the dray run? It's Christmas! That's right, Noddy. It is. Back in 2010, around this time of year, me and the missus were invited to a wedding of an American friend I used to work with out in a sleepy village on the edge of the Peak District. Some friends of mine were in a wedding band who were performing covers of everything from The Killers and Coldplay to The Red Hot Chili Peppers and Rage Against Machine. They were a pretty eclectic bunch, I can tell you that. Nevertheless, they were so loud that the decibel monitor designed to keep sound levels to a minimum for local residents by cutting the power out for five minutes every time the noise went over the peak level kept plunging the hundred or so guests into near darkness save for a few battery-powered Christmas tree lights and candles adorning tables. During one of these interludes, somewhere between Californication and Mr Brightside, I wandered over to the bar and was confronted by a choice of two cask beers, both from the same local brewery. I want you to picture the scene. One was their stock blonde, and the other... Belgian blue, what's that? asked the bartender. Ah, it's right, good that, she says. All right then, I'll have a pint, please. She pulls it, and then hands me this drink that's this purple reddy colour, with a blue-pink-tinged head and says, that'd be £3.50, please. I'm like, what the hell's this? I asked for Belgian blue. That's what that's got. I take a sip. I take another sip. Bloody hell, that's right good. She smirks and says, I told thee, before serving the next customer. I take my beer over to my missus and say, try that. What have you got beer in black coat for, she says. Just have a sup. She drinks it. Oh, it's right good, that. Well, well, actually, she's from Peterborough, so it's more like, ooh, that's nice. After seeing 
a decline in milk sales from local customers and being hit hard by supermarket pricing, the Gill family looked for an alternative to dairy farming, including furniture making. In an epiphany moment, they decided to take their love of beer, sell their cattle and in 2005, with help of government funding, start Bradfield Brewery. Since then, Bradfield Brewery has become a much-loved institution in Sheffield and regions reaching up the north coast and down into the heart of the Midlands. While their beers may not be dry hopped within an inch of their life, I can guarantee you'll be served a crystal clear pint of traditional cask ale with a thick creamy head that displays beautiful lacing all the way down the glass, as appealing to the eye as it is to the palate when you return for a third or fourth pint. Around the festive season every year, Belgian Blue, a traditional bitter infused with elderberries, has become one of Sheffield's most consumed beers. Deliciously velvety in colour, with a slight residual sweetness balanced beautifully with fruity tartness, the beer, named after a breed of cow, is now one of the hallmarks to kickstart the festive season. And while, as I mentioned, their beers may not appeal to the untapped massive, they've won countless awards over the years and continue to dominate tap handles in both metropolitan and country pubs. I recently caught up with John Gill and Jackie Helliwell from the brewery to talk all about what makes the taste of tradition a success in today's beer market. If you like the Hot Four podcast, make sure you subscribe to the show and share it with another friend within the beer industry. Follow us on social media at Hot4Beers and visit our website hot4.beer, signing up to our mailing list where we'll be publishing new exclusive content just for our subscribers from the start of 2020. So sit back, crack open a Belgian Blue and check out today's conversation recorded on a crisp, sunny winter's day at Wathouse Farm at Bradfield Brewery. Today on the Hot Four podcast, I'm on the edge of the Peak District in what's become one of Sheffield's finest institutions, Bradfield Brewery, with John and Jackie. Hello. 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 How's it going? Not too bad, thank you. Good. You guys are busy on the run up to Christmas? Very busy. Yeah, fortunately. Yeah, it's a busy time of year for us, uh, both delivering and shop-wise, everything. Yeah. yeah. Is this your busiest time of year, Christmas? Oh, yeah, by far. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a funny industry in that uh, you lead up to Christmas, is that? All hands on deck, everybody that you can get is doing things. And then January the 1st, everybody wants to go on holiday because there's nothing to do with <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's hard, the pub trade, isn't it, and the beer trade in January? It's Yeah, I mean, obviously, you're ticking over, but you, you go from one real extreme to the other. You know, mm. January the 1st, that's it, just cut off. I mean, I would imagine with you guys, because you're such a institution in Sheffield and your, your beer's pretty much everywhere, that you never really had that hard hit by... January, but was it like that in the early days when you first started? When you know you were, I would imagine that you were just one of the handful of breweries, and um, yeah, I mean, we'd always noticed it, and you still, I think you still notice it on the percentage wise because in the early days you wasn't that busy compared to what we are now in December. So you, you know, your pitfall after December then wasn't you know, it's uh, everything goes up in proportion, really, yeah. Cool, so just give us a bit of the history behind Bradfield Brewery and bring our listeners up to speed with what, what kind of brewery you were then and why you started and, and what you are today. Why we started brewing, um, and up till 2005 we were dairy farming and then 
dairy farm in this area and milk prices were just falling beyond belief and you, you just weren't making it pay. Is that because uh, of supermarkets and things? Basically supermarkets, yeah, just undercutting the uh, milk marketing board packed up and then supermarkets came along offering a bit more money, lost leaders and whatever, milk and then suddenly the milk price dropped because farmers were paying for it. So we needed to diversify and uh, we had somebody you could get a grant from the Ministry to come round, Ministry of Agriculture to come round and give you some advice into what you could diversify into. And we had this chap come out and me and Richard, you met a while ago, uh, we had this meeting with him and his parting shot when he left is whatever you decide to diversify into, make sure it's something you're interested in. And we thought about making garden furniture and this and the other, but I couldn't see myself with an apron all day and doing that. So uh, off he went and then one night, a couple of nights later, Richard came in into the room, I was sat watching Teller, bottle of beer, glass of beer in my hand and he said, what about a micro brewer? And we'd both done home brewing and Richard had took it on to another level and I said, oh, that's a good idea, yeah, we'll do that. And then, of course, next morning he asked me the same question. I thought, yeah, it's a good idea, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll do it. And it virtually just went from there. And we did set off really with a cavalier attitude that if, if it didn't work, at least we'd get drunk every night. So, <laughs> we're on to a winner. Nice. Wow. So, I mean, what, what, what was it like when, when you thought, I'm actually going to do this, I'm actually going to take this jump? Like, what, what was that like? Because it's one thing to, to you know have an crazy idea in your head and you dream about it and stuff, but then to actually like sit down and look at how much things cost and what you need and so on. Like I think well, basically we, we set off and um, we'd never thought it'd be as big as what it got to or even when we first started. So we we picked a building on a farm that we went to turn into a brewery, and we did all the conversion. Me and Richard, did, I think we laid every block in there and everything. Um, but even at that time, we were going to brew beer, we were going to deliver it, we were going to sell it, and we were going to still milk cows, and that was never an issue. And I always remember thinking, uh, as we are coming through, you know, oh, as soon as we start brewing, every pub in Sheffield have our beer, and that's as, that's as far as it'll go. And anyway, we started brewing, not every pub in Sheffield had it, but one or two did. And uh, we started getting orders for a bit further away. I remember one came in from Alfreton, I thought, that's a long way to go, because uh, myself and Susan, my wife, we did all the delivering to start with. Right. Um, I'd been in a pub cellar before we started, and so off we went to learn it. So you don't set anybody else on to do something you can't do yourself. So off we went, and uh, we found it quite, you know, it was interesting. But anyway, we'd been going about six months, and already then the beer was paying more money than what the farm, you know, dairy farm mm. was. And I think me and Susan made the biggest decision we've ever made in his life, because we could go into a milking parlour blindfold and milk cows, that was our job. And we decided to sell milk cows, and that that one chap came, and he bought a whole lot, and when I phoned him up that night, I said, yeah, you can have them. That was the biggest decision we've ever done. Wow. That was like, I don't know if you say it on here, but squeaky bum time. It really, you know, <laughs> we'd, gone, we'd gone from at least some money coming into, you know, is it going to work this adventure? But anyway, fortunately, it has worked. Yeah. So I mean, brings up to speed with, you know, today, like you know, how, how far is your reach? Um, how big's your brew house and all that thing sort of thing. Uh, well, we started off with a ten barrel brew plant, and even going back to then, ten barrels, forty nine gall gallon casks we produce. You know, thinking how we're going to sell all these. Uh, so anyway, we did sell them, and. In 2010, we got that we're brewing two or three times a day on this 10-barrel plant. So in 2010, we made a decision to put a, a bigger plant in, and we more or less had to gut the original brew house to put these big tanks in, and we put a 40-barrel brew plant in from Moshla, who mm. made design yeah, for yeah. the building. Um, and it's just gone on from there, so at the moment, we brew at least twice a day on that plant. This time of year, we'll be producing 
between 350 and 400 barrels a week. Right. Uh, we, as usual, just over 300 what we do, which uh, it's, it's gone crazy. Yeah, and how far, how far do your customers, are they, is it just northern, <coughs> is it all across the country, do you export, that kind of thing? We, we don't export, um, we can sell all we, we can brew in this country, that's what I like right. to, to <laughs> tell you. Um, just a rule of thumb, we go down as far as, well, Northampton, Northampton area, yeah. as far as, and then up north like Newcastle, and then coast to coast, Blackpool to Bridlington, so it's basically, you could say just over 100 mile radius, as far as somebody can go in a van for a day and right. deliver and then come back. But then we do supply wholesalers at um, you know, main hubs that will take it further afield, so it could right. be anywhere in the country, really. Okay, I remember being on holiday in Whitby a few years ago, thinking, oh, I'm looking forward to trying some of the, the local ales. <laughs> I went into a pub, I'm like, Farmer's Blonde, come on. Like. <laughs> but it was quite nice, actually, you know, like a beer, a beer away from home. <laughs> um, I mean, I want to talk uh, in part today about traditional beer styles. I, I, I think in, in the world of craft beer, um, in this day and age where you can walk into a, a pub um, in Sheffield and you're confronted by all these pale hoppy beers, and they're on rotation from brewers across the country. Some some are really well known, some you'll have never heard of. Uh, you can guarantee a staple beer you'll see on many, many bars is Farmer's Blonde, or, or at this time, Bel Belgian Blue. So, I mean, starting with beer like Farmer's Blonde, like, how, how does a brewery like Bradfield manage to create and refine such a no-nonsense beer like Farmer's Blonde and keep it consistent on the bars for 15 years? Uh, we did set off with a simple, the first three beers was bitter, stout and pale so what you you know what you see the basic beers and uh, we just wanted to make a, a nice english beer because we use all english hops where we can we do occasionally use a german hop when we use in uh, for football because the german world cup yep. came when we first started but they're generally all english hops and we just wanted to make a down-to-earth beer that the man on the street would like and would appreciate uh, one perhaps I'm not saying a mistake, but a bit naive. When we brewed bitter, was the first ever one, and bitter's got a bit of an old-fashioned name to it. So you did get that the younger end wouldn't try it because he said bitter. Uh, we now call it Farmer's Ale, and it uh, it sells quite well. It's, it is a nice drink, though it's not as popular as Blonde. Uh, blonde was actually brewed. It was Blonde and Brown Cow. We brewed that for Weatherspoon's promotion back, I think, 2005. Right. As a, a light beer and a dark beer they wanted. So we just brewed them. And uh, the blonde one turned into uh, blonde, which is blonde aquity, named after a cow. And brown was uh, named after Swiss brown cow. So right. it was a brown beer. And uh, that's how they came about. Uh, right. So for a, a beer that's very sessionable, and like we were talking before about there, there are beers you drink, a beer's experience, it's very much a beer, beer you drink. Like, do you, what's your opinion on like when, when you go on like Twitter or whatever you, you'll see everyone drinking all kinds of crazy beers and stuff but actually you know the, the proof's in the pudding that you, you sell this stuff day in day out all the time do you think that it can be a little bit exaggerated online as to what kind of beers people are into um, I, I, I think a lot of them are one off beers Yeah. you know we, we've all been in a pub sometime and you've seen a beer oh I'll try that and you'll have a drink of it have a pint in fact I've learned they only have our halves to start with because you never know what you're going to get but you'll have, you'll have your half and yeah some of them taste nice and you think yeah that decent beer but you know I don't want another one you don't just don't leave that finish that you want thinks oh I fancy another one of them so th there's definitely a place for them but it's obviously not a, a big market you're not going to get people going back and drinking pint after pint of it and crossing the board you know between women and you know 
men and even younger, you know, so to younger drinkers, shall we say. Yeah. So, yeah, there's definitely a place, but I think it's a limited place myself. Do you think brewers often fall into the trap, particularly younger ones, of, you know, seeing that and seeing those beers they really like and just and trying to aspire to be the next, I don't know, the Monk or Cloudwater or whatever, um, and without thinking of the wider market, like, say, the average person that just wants to have a drink. Yeah, yeah. Well, I said there's definitely a place for it, but I think if you're looking at starting a business, um, I mean, obviously it, it, there have been cases, you know, it's uh, Brewdog yep. was the obvious one. Uh, they made a real success out of brewing these specialised beers. But we looked at it as a holy grail, is to make a beer that tastes the same as the last one you brewed. Mm. And that's the one we started from. So it's quite easy to start a brewery up and call each beer, each brew, a different name because you can't make it the same as what you did last time. Yep. Well, and it sells because... As we all know, there's tickers will come along and oh, it's a new beer, you know, we'll, we'll have some of that. But whether it's a, a good model for a business model long term, I don't know. Yeah. I think you've got to really work it. If, if it is, if that's what you're going to do, you've, uh, I don't know, it's, it won't be for us. Yeah. I think you gain a fan base as well by, by um, delivering consistency. So obviously, like you said, that Farmer's Blonde in Whitby, you know that that's going to taste just like the Farmer's Blonde that you get down the road in Hillsborough. It's, it's that consistent... You see that brand, that's that beer, I know that beer. I'm not sure what any of these are on the bar. I just need a pint that I, I know I'm going to like. I'll have one of them. And that's, I think, what our brand does, not just with Blonde. I think it's the Belgian Blue. It's got its own following. I think they see that badge, they know exactly what they're going to get. So if you've got, like, a space where you can have two or three pints, I'm going to stick with what I know because I want to enjoy my drink. And that's, yeah. I think it's good for us that we have got that consistency. Absolutely, that leads nicely to my next question actually, because um, I remember hearing a phrase once saying that anyone can brew a beer, but it takes a masterful brewer to consistently brew a great beer and a great quality beer time and again. And I, I think, as you say, there's lots of talk in the industry as well, particularly from distributors at the moment, about the, the varying and inconsistent quality of, of many brewers' beers. And, and like you say, I've, I've never had a bad pint of Farmer's Blonde there, like ever. Um, you know, it's it's wherever I've had it, and in particularly like in, like I say in the pub down the road from here, the Nags Head. Um, you know, it's always been absolutely spot on. I mean, what what does it take from from a brewing perspective for for Bradfield to be able to deliver this taste of tradition time and time again? Um, I think a lot was back down to equipment. And right from day one, when we first started brewing, we, we bought the best equipment we possibly could, uh, and most of it turned out to be a really good. Um, really good firm to buy vessels from. Mm. Uh, so I think a lot's your efficiency of what you start. It's no good starting on a bit of Heath Robinson equipment and expect to make good, consistent beer. So that that's a lot to do with it. And just getting your procedures in place. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of people said when we first started, oh, it's got to be different from milking cows, but it's not. You're keeping tanks clean, you're keeping everything, you know, as clean as you can, and uh, but you haven't got cows mucking it up all the time. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah. It's a cleaner job, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I thought brewing was messy, but... Um, <laughs> milking cows is messy. <laughs> I, I <could> <laughs> that. Just before we sold the milk cows, we'd, uh, they said it was starting to earn a bit of money at brewery. And we went into the parlour one morning and uh, when we, oh sorry, when we came round brewing with white wellies on and white smocks and everything, we're brewing beer and it's all right. They went into the parlour, started milking, green wellies on, overalls on, everything else. First cow kicks you, next one piss on you, last of your shits, I give me 15 pence a litre for this. <laughs> yeah, you know, I get that. To, 
So, yeah, and that, and that was a good day. So, I mean, just moving on uh, a little bit, like, talk to us about Belgian Blue. I mean, I, I remember the first time I had it was a, uh, a wedding yeah. at, um, at Bradfield Village Hall. And I, m- I remember being like, oh, that's that, because, you know, like, as a graphic designer, I saw the, the kind of, uh, the, the nice sort of uh, design and everything. I was like, oh, that looks interesting. I'll have a pint of that. And then they bring out this, like, purple pint with this violet coloured head I'm like what the hell's that but I remember tasting it being like just it tasted like nothing I'd ever had and, and I mean I think since then for locally and well I mean maybe even for Everfield I don't know but I know, I know particularly locally it's like people lose their shit when it comes out <laughs> it's, it's like uh, you know and it's, it's become this sort of big thing that you know it's like um, Belgian Blue is, is back from this weekend and it has like a little launch and everything yeah, people booking days off yeah. and wait to come and do the launch it's wow great. amazing yeah. I mean how, how did that beer come into being and uh, like what makes it so unique well I don't tell you a true story but <laughs> well I will tell you a true story uh, Paul Ward he was head brewer for us for a while he, he helped us set everything up in fact he only quite recently left us uh, mm. and it was his you know he's got this he got chased for things and I don't know how to tell you this but he's a Wednesday fan he wanted to make a blue beer and the only way he could make beer blue was to put a blue tint on it. So now United fans are going to start drinking blue but, anyway, <laughs> but that's why we made it red to start with for United fans yeah. There you go. We've leveled that one up. But basically, that was it. And you can make a beer green fairly easy, but to make a blue beer is fairly hard. But the best could do was a blue tint on the head. And if it's served upright, it will fall aside the glass down. But basically, uh, Belgian blue is a fruit beer. And it's always amazes me that people, oh, I don't like fruit beers, I'm not into fruit beers. But it is basically a fruit beer. And it's that seasonal sort of beer. Because another question we often get asked is, why don't you brew it all year round? But it's seasonal because it's a strong beer. People wouldn't drink it in the middle of summer, not like they do. Yeah. And they look forward to it coming out. So I, I'm, I'm convinced that we wouldn't sell any more if we brewed it all year round than what we do from when, you know, the time we do brew it. And then the other one on that is, oh, I'm sure it's stronger than what it should be. And say, well, what do you usually drink? And say, oh, I usually drink blonde or something. I say, well, you're drinking four pints of blonde at 4%, and then you're going on to something like this, it's, what, 4.9%, so it's nearly another percentage higher, so you've had an extra pint. Yeah. And that's what they don't factor in, but... Uh, it always sells well anyway. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine it's that like limited availability. If you if you miss out now, that's it. Oh, you're not getting it until next year. It's a bit like I'm a celebrity, isn't it? People look forward to it. Christmas is coming, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, well what they yeah, do look yeah, forward to it. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I'm not saying something wrong, but it, it's a thing about Christmas. Yeah. yeah. Um, so with all the buzz surrounding craft beer over the last few years, where, where do you think more traditional cast beers like blondes, bitters and pale ales, as you mentioned earlier, are heading over the, the coming years, particularly as we head into the, the 20s? That sounds a bit weird, doesn't it, the 20s? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I can't see it falling away. So I still think it's still, you know, people still want a good honest pint. And though there's there'll always be a place for craft beer, it's never going to replace the quantity that people, you know, working man, I, I used that phrase before, working man, it's perhaps a wrong sort of phrase, but the average chap that just wants to come out and have a drink, or average lady that wants to go out and have a drink, and there's plenty of them out there. You know, not everybody wants to walk in a pub and have a meal and a glass of wine, or, you know, just one, some people want to go out and have three or four pints, and that's that's where it fits in. So. Yeah. How does a, a brewery like Bradfield Brewery look to develop as a business uh, and, and reach more consumers with the beers you produce? I think uh, long term, um, and we started doing it 
uh, small pubs. Um, Nags Head we've had just over 10 years. Uh, we've bought the King and Miller, that's been running just over a year. That was my local growing up. And, <laughs> and we're just about to open the, the Waltliffe Arms. Uh, that should be open on Thursday this right, week. Right, is that Waltliffe's side? At Waltliffe's right, side. Yeah. And uh, they are small little community pubs. And from what we've seen, they, are, they can be thriving pubs with genuine drinkers in. We do provide meals, we do provide food, but it's basic pie and peas, that sort of thing, you know, and uh, it seems to be working on, on what, what we're doing. Uh, and I still think there's a market for them sorts of places. Mm. Do you think breweries can survive today without having their own outlets? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I think so, yeah. Um, I, I suppose it depends on your situations and where you are. Uh, you know, we could perhaps see a time when we can't physically brew any more beer on site. Mm. So then you'd have to look at your own outlets to expand, you know, to keep expanding. Um, if you're if you've got plenty of capacity to keep brewing, uh, perhaps your own outlet might be a bit of a distraction when you're first starting. Right. Because um, it's not easy. You know, everybody thinks we'll get a pub. It's easy to run. It's not. It's uh, especially if you start with a bit of food. Yeah. You, you're away from the beer side, then you've got to start dealing with uh, cooks and chefs and everything else. So it's. Oh, well, we used to run a tap room on site at Sheffield Brewery, um, and when opposite Peddler Market and when that started opening more regularly I mean that that in and of itself just getting ready for that for the weekend was mm. like you know as the brewer and the brewery manager and running this tap yeah, room I was yeah. like oh my goodness yeah. like, doing, doing this tap room is a full-time job in and of itself yeah, you know it's important <laughs> that you do split off your different jobs because obviously as, as brewer if you take your attention off that and start sort of trying to organize this that and the other something's going to go wrong. So I think what we do try and do here is make sure that the, the, the brewing is where it all starts. So mm. that's got to be perfect. They've got to be allowed the time and the space to do their job properly and let other people do the running about, sorting the pubs out, deliveries, sales, and just let the, the key part is the brewing and let make sure that's right yep. and let other people deal with the nitty-gritty stress of all the other stuff because then at least your beer's going to be right mm. wherever it mm. goes. Yeah, so that's important. It was one of the hardest lessons I ever learned in business. You know, tr <clears> trying to trying to wear too many hats. And when, when I first started, and I was just like, you know, what? Wh why is this so nuts? <laughs> you know, yeah. why am I never stopping? And then mm. I read a book called The E Myth by a guy called Michael Gerber. And um, you know, basically the premise of this book is that everyone thinks when you start your own business, you're like, oh, I'm an entrepreneur and all that. You know, and it's me versus the world and actually what you find is that um you don't own a business the business owns you and that all you're doing is everything and it was like you know um all you've become is like a technician someone that can do the technical work trying to be the manager trying to be the entrepreneur trying mm -hmm. to be the technician and trying to you know be head of HR and actually you, you've just got if you're running the business you've got to concentrate on developing that business and like I said let your brewers brew get yeah, a brewer into yeah. brew get someone in, in to run a tap room and although you might think yeah but that's another cost that's an expense you're like well actually it is up front but it will pay dividends longer term yeah, yeah. and you will generate more money because you can focus on your key area what you need to do that's right yeah, yeah. um so, like, how's, how's your branding help Bradfield Brewery? Because, I mean, it, it is quite iconic around these parts, you know, and, and like, it's really easy to recognise. Right, branding. Um, so when we first started, we, we did have someone in a consultant came in to have a look at some branding. And she walked in with big red hair and big fancy coat and 
boots up to her knees and whatever. And thought, oh, it's a good start so coming onto a farm. Because bear in mind at that time we had no time like that. Then it was just cow muck everywhere. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> suddenly she came in and she came out with these wild, wacky ideas and whatever. I said, it's just not what we're wanting. It's not what we feel is our market. Going back to the man on the street and. Uh, I, I put in books before I, I struggled to read and write, always have done dyslexic, they call it now, and now it's called they used to get ruler because I couldn't read. So <laughs> I, I were more on shapes, mean more to me than anything. Mm. So his first thing was to pick a shape for a pump clip. That if you saw that pump clip from the other side of the bar, you couldn't read what it said, that pump clip said Bradfield Brewery. Yep. So that one was first things, and then really his logo on top, uh, myself and Richard went down to a printer in Sheffield with an idea of what we were after, and we just we worked it out and that's what we came up with. Uh, a wheel representing crushing the barley and ops underneath it. So that was something else that visually, you can take that into a lot of different areas and it still says Bradfield Brewery without any words on it. Yeah. Um, and then farmers came about because uh, I'd been in pubs in Sheffield and I ended up pointing at a pump clip because I couldn't read what it said. You know, don't get me wrong, I can read Bean or them sorts of things. And I have had four books in my life, but two aren't coloured in yet. But anyway, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I, I sort of looking at a pump clip and I'm pointing at it saying, oh, I'll have a pint of that. And I thought, we don't want that. But even if you dislike to go not, simple words like farmers, you can recognise. So that's how that farmers brand came out. I want a pint of farmers, which worked perhaps a bit too well because when we started getting more beers on which is farmers blonde farmers people coming to the pub at nags and say oh I'll have a pint of farmers and he looks at the range of six <laughs> yeah, bars all and give me a go so um, that was basically as marketing as marketing we more or less done around kitchen table while we had his, his meals and uh, you know names to come up with then somebody worked for us when after we'd first started uh, she was working in the office and she actually drew the first cow sort of thing oh, right, okay, nice. uh, the first tractors were actually drawn by a friend's uh, father he drew them and back to simple things just to sim you know keep it simple because nike and all these people they don't mess about with all fancy stuff it's a tick everybody knows who it is yeah you know so that was basically on marketing keep it simple yeah simple it, things get done well it's interesting when you look at the um the brand value for that that tick on Nike ads or like the Coca-Cola logo, mm. you know, if you, you this, I saw um, a graph once. I can't remember the figure, but like it, you, you're literally talking the the brand identity adds like billions yeah, onto yeah. their share, you know, overall value yeah, yeah. of the company. Um, you know, and yeah, I, th I think it's um, ha having a really good it's a big and thing. simple and obviously brand what, is a what you're, thing, yeah. what you're into, yeah. Yeah, and absolutely. I think it's developing that brand, and that's what we have tried to do from start. Because when we first started bottling beer as well, on a you know simple bottle condition beer, we were making very little money on it. In fact, I'm sure we're losing it. But my thought was, if we can get that onto some shop, you know, into some shops, and that brand name, that brand's back there, looking at people, and they, then they go into a pub and see that. Oh, I've seen that before. I'll have a pint. So. Just getting the amount started, you know, people recognising it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As people tend to drink more at this time of year, like Christmas cheer and all that, um, what, what sort of things can brewers and publicans do to capitalise on the festive seasons to help them through what what's always a difficult start to the new year? Lock door and keep people in. Lock in. What can they do? I think a good atmosphere. Publicans, yeah. I think if they concentrate on that, it's all about sort of groups drinking I think more this time of year you tend to meet friends that you've perhaps not caught up with for a while mm. or you drink with family so I think if you can provide um, you know an outlet that that's welcoming for families groups 
um, and, and sort of offering that like we've said we like the traditional offering mm. don't we where yeah, it might yeah. be it, like in in our pubs we do where they can have like a sharing pork pie and and that works quite well you'll have a group of a group sat around a table oh should we have one of them to share so they're all there with the, the pint and just having a bit of a nibble and a chat and all of a sudden an hour's gone by and they've had another drink without knowing mm. i think just a nice welcoming yep. traditional setting. I, I think another thing on pubs as well and just at pubs we, we've got small pubs and like i know i'm a bit sort of old-fashioned perhaps but i hate it when you go in a pub and noise is that music's that loud you can't talk to a person sat next mm. to you or you know you're shouting at somebody that noise becomes louder and i think people by tradition, go to pubs to socialise. You don't go to get drunk because you could go down to Morrison's and buy a bottle of whiskey for 15, 16 quid, couldn't you, and take it home. So you're going to see somebody. And if you can create that environment where it's in there and, you know, people can have a chat where they go in and meet somebody, it's, I think that's what you... Make it welcoming. Yeah. That's what you need. Yeah. Absolutely. So when do you, when, as a brewery, like, when do you start planning Christmas? <laughs> This is back to you. Yeah. Go on. It's February. I want to say it's, it's early it's on. It's literally yeah, yeah. all, well, all year round really. for us. So we'll sort of have this busy time now, and then January we get that lull, and we have a bit of a joke going off in the office because we've got a January list. So anything that we don't feel we've got time to do, like concentrate on, put it on January list. Put it on Jan. Well, you get to January. By the time you've done your list, it's February, and it's we best start planning for Christmas. So it's yeah, we get sort of where we have to put schedules in for bottling. Um, doing the mini cakes oh, and calendars as well, isn't it? Calendars. You know, last few years we've done those that. different yes. calendars, and yeah. you know that's like an early on a year. You need to be thinking about that yeah. and uh, you know planning what theme it's going to be and what you know you're going to do it. So and you're constantly analysing as well. So you, you'd straight away after Christmas you've got to analyse what what how much you've just produced, what you've sold, what's sold well, what's not, and then you've got to make notes to make sure that obviously you schedule properly for next year. Try and project what what the forecast is going to be and stuff. So mm. yeah. To be honest, apart from that few weeks where you have that downtime, it's all year round planning. So, uh, so how, how much time goes into like looking at the stats, at, like, you know, your analytics and your return on investment and all that stuff? Like, how much time do you spend tracking? Uh, I think it's difficult to put a time spent on it. I think it's it's just constantly monitored. I'm not saying every day you look at figures, but whenever you get the question of how much of this shall we brew, so say if we're doing a new seasonal ale. Um, how much should we brew? Well, we'll look back and see what the last new seasonal brew sold, and we'll base some figures on that. So every decision you make, you would perhaps think, well, I'll look back at that figure or I'll look at that figure. But I wouldn't say it's a you spend a lot of time per day, but your decisions yeah, yeah. that you make, obviously, you've got to calculate. Mm. What What would you say the key building blocks to to growing and sustaining a profitable and successful beer business like this are? Well, your main building block is your beer. You know, if you can produce an easy drinking, decent beer, that's your holy grail, and then just work from there, really. Mm. You know, because things do develop. When I said when we first started, we was in just one building across the other side, and we we brewed the beer in there, we uh, fermented it in there, we racked it in there, we washed the casks in there, everything we're doing there. Small office in there, which was on the stairs, and it sort of grew from that. Don't sort of don't drop onto this as we are now. We developed from a, a small start from small acorns, as you said. Mm. Asking them a plug, aren't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Our more studious listeners will know what you mean. <laughs> um, I mean, back back in two thousand and four, you know, did did you envision it ever being this? this not big? at all. Not not even. Like I said, we never we never thought we were going to sell cows. We never thought we were going to employ Ed Brewer. We never thought we you know. We'd be doing more than milking cows and brewing this beer to 
but I was determined when it did start paying that we weren't going to use a beer job to like back up the cow, you know what I mean, to subsidise the cows so mm. the supermarkets could benefit from it. So no, it sort of developed into that really. And then after the first year, that's when we got the first driver, then we're getting a bit busy. Because I remember early days, like we'd, we'd get his orders in for that day and if we were selling, I don't know, say you went to a van with nine, nine, nine gallons in, like ten, nine gallons in, you you know, quite busy like. And I remember going up to Newcastle once with just six, nine gallons in back, which we obviously lost money on, but you've got to, not every day is a profitable day. Some days you've got to just work at it and suck it yeah. and see. And uh, so, no, it develops. Anyway, then we got a driver on, and so there's two of us going out with vans, and then another driver, and sort of developed from there. So. Yeah, amazing. So, I mean, what, what's the future um, for, for Bradfield Brewery? What's next? What's next? We're always keeping, or we have been keeping his eye out for another suitable local pub. Um, I think that's the way forward for us more than anything. Mm. Uh, we have got ideas and planning permission through to convert to an original building that we've got uh, to move us because as we've gone on things have like moved into other areas and what have you so we you know we no longer there's original brew house that we were started we're just brewing there now it's all transferred into another building for racking and another building for storing and we've we're br- wanting to bring that all under one roof right. again uh, which hopefully should be done I'd like to say this next year, but it's quite a major job because yeah, uh, yeah. You know, it's not as easy. Well, nothing's easy if it reads everybody to it. Right? Uh, but that's the next plans on site anyway. Yeah, gosh, moving all your brew house kit. <laughs> well, we're not, we're not thinking of actually moving brew house kit. Oh, right, okay. The idea is we'll still brew where we are yep. and take it into this other building for filling and you know storing everything else will be in this other building. Though I know Richard did come in the other day and he said, oh, we might be as well moving up brew house, which frightened me to death then, so I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd, I'd hate to think about the logistics of that, oh, trying to be like, well, you know, because it's a huge undertaking, isn't it? It's, <laughs> you know? it's a bit like loss of production. I don't know, it's such a... Mm. I know when we put this new brew house in, when we took this old 10 barrel plant out, we as actual brewing, we moved the brewing end to the other end of the building and we managed to keep brewing all the way through, though it was complete mess and everything, but we, we managed to keep that going. How we do it on this instance, I don't know, because we would physically have to take the, you know, everything out, yeah. obviously move it down there, so I don't know how that's going to work, how long to be down for. Gosh. Though we were talking about putting a bigger copper in, about 60 barrel copper, so I don't know. But, <laughs> so anyway, we'll wait and see on that, because typical Germans, they came as a 40 barrel kit and it's producing nearly 50 barrel every time. Right. We have the 60 barrel fermenter, so it's uh, to tie on to what, yeah. what we've got, but uh, so that, that's his main thing anyway, that's mm. how we go. Um, so yeah, uh, just just last question then. Like, any future aspiring brewers listening to this, or maybe th- those just getting started or, or in their filmative years? Like, what what advice would you give them in today's beer industry and crowded market? For a start, need plenty of money. You know, it's um, we were fortunate in that we obviously got the building, we got the site, and when we actually sold as milk cows with with that money to tip into it. Um, it, it's a very expensive thing to get into. I know when we'd first got going, I went on a brewing course up at York, and I remember talking, as you do, without one night talking, he said, oh, he says, uh, I've got £10,000, I want to start brewing. I thought, even, you know, we were still thinking in a small way. I thought, £10,000, I'm going to buy a cast, and I mind anything else. Yeah. But, you know, don't, it's a very expensive business to get into. But a lot of other businesses are as well. Mm. Even down to cast, I know when we first started, we bought 300 casts. And I thought, that's a lot of money, and you know, are we going to fill all them? And how many have we got now? 
Vi bare så jævnt, de stopper i det, vi er et skib, så det er godt. Ja, ja, ja. Så er det noget ved 1000. Ja, det er kun nærmere 5000. Imagine tracking all those. I think it's just keeping simple things right. You know, like each driver goes with a delivery sheet, obviously. Like, if they fill that in properly, when they come back, you know, it should be nice and easy to put onto the computer and pay no answer. And again, if you've got somebody in the office checking the driver's work when he gets back, you can ask, he, she, uh, you can ask, why haven't you filled that in? Like, what's the problem with that one? Why have you not filled? And if you just sort of give them that check, because it's just that they forgot on that drop because they were busy trying to get yeah, everything, totally. and they'll say, oh, sorry, I forgot. Next day, they might not forget one, because you've, whereas if yeah. you just, drivers come in, took everything on a shelf and mm. walk back out again, there's no checking procedures in place, then yeah. things would just, Laps and laps, but I think we, you know, we do try and regularly check. Things build up, don't they? You know, yeah. you you find if one area has gone wrong at some stage, you think, well, why has it gone wrong? So you put that right, and it's an ongoing thing all the time. Like, I can make it a bit better. I can, you know, and I know this year we we implicated because so we've we said we've seven vans now, two lorries what we run, and like they more or less keep to their own vans, but then they were coming by some battered up, and what have you. And we started to think this year a bonus scheme for them. Any sort of damage, you're going to get some damage. We're not down to that, but you know, careless sort of damage, and it comes off a bonus scheme or what have you. And I tell you what, we bought four vans brand new, didn't we? Not so long since, and then four vans are nearly new now. Yeah. You know, they're getting looked after a lot <laughs> yeah. better. And it, it's so it's just implementing that thing, plus like a defects thing, which you know we'd had before, but it didn't really work because it weren't. They hadn't got that incentive to fill it in. But now they have. If it's not there every week, that defects, you know, anything wrong with banner or signed off, you know, and it's uh, what you don't want is a, is a van sat in yard for a day because it's yeah. got an issue that's not reported, and it is things like that because that can have an impact on. We can't do all the deliveries that we need to in the morning because that van's off. So it's it's just about, like we said before, making sure the brewers do the brewing, the yeah. the office manager does the office thing, the the fleet manager looks after the vehicles and everybody has that reporting procedure because otherwise if everybody's going yeah. up and doing all the different things yeah. well like i say it is from somebody starting out it don't it don't come like that on first day things have to go wrong almost before you yeah. can put them right yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely as long as you're learning from your mistakes and, well, and, right, yeah. and acting yeah. on it well fa- i mean thanks for being on the podcast today like how, how can people find out about badfield brewing and uh, where, where can they go drink your beer well, in any of our free pubs now, for a start, but at, at there'll be many £2.50 a pint. <laughs> £2.50 yeah. a pint. But yeah, um, we don't do a stockist list on our website just because it's ever-changing and we would hate to send someone off on a wild goose chase based on information we've provided for them not to find it. So I think yep. um, the website's always a good place for general information. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, there's always pubs putting on there. I think pubs like to shout about what beers they've got on now. So I know a lot of real ill uh, drinkers do tend to follow these pages. So we make sure that we've always got a presence on there. And yeah, if you're ever in doubt, just and if, grab your brewery tap. Yeah. <laughs> and if anybody goes into a pub and they haven't got our beer on, tell them to ask landlord, why not? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Get Amazing, yeah. brilliant. Well, th- thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for that. No problem. Today's episode of the Hot Forward podcast was brought to you by Eco Keg, the strongest, most versatile and eco-friendly one-way keg on the market today. Eco Kegs can be racked just like a cask or counter-pressure filled like any traditional steel keg. Made in the UK using 70% recycled materials and fully recyclable to industrial recyclers, they can be 100% recycled by EcoKeg themselves into new kegs and they also offer free collection for empty EcoKegs. 
Used extensively across the brewing industry by cast brewers looking to enter the keg market without needing any expensive equipment, as well as macro and micro brewers distributing across the UK and throughout the rest of the world, particularly because they are available not only in Sankey valves, but Grundy, A and D types also. For more information, you can speak directly to Lewis on 01656 725 799 or email info at ecokeg.com or visit their website ecokeg.com. Thanks for tuning in to the Hot Forward podcast this week. Don't forget we're here to help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. So hit the subscribe button for more insights into the beer industry. Connect with us at hotforward.beer or through our social media channels at Hot Forward Beers. Until next time, cheers. Hey,